This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. This is episode number 10, recorded on May 19th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe. I'm here with a special guest, Dr. Robert Seeger from Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Welcome, Dr. Seeger. Thank you very much. It's a very uh, much a pleasure to have you here today. Uh, you recently gave a seminar to our group this afternoon, and you're here for a neuroblastoma conference tomorrow, so we're very much looking forward to that. Dr. Seeger is a long-standing physician scientist in pediatric oncology, best known for his work with neuroblastoma. He's currently the professor and division head for basic and translational research at the Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases at Children's Hospital Los Angeles and the USC School of Medicine. And if you have any questions that occur to you as you're listening to this podcast that I don't ask him and you want to write in a question or comment, please feel free to whenever you're listening to this in the future. Remember, our email address is twipo, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. So, Dr. Seeger, why don't we go back a little bit to the beginning, and maybe you can tell me about how you got interested in medicine and pediatrics and oncology. Well, my first uh, glimmer, I suppose, that I was really interested in medicine was in undergraduate school, uh, where I was studying biology, and I became very enthralled with biology those days, there was no molecular biology at all. It was just studying uh, animals and fruit flies and that sort of thing. So I was very interested. And then I went on to medical school and, and fortunately uh, was able to uh, work with a professor in uh, genetics and experimental hematology. And at that time, I was working on the ultrastructure of chromosomes and trying to figure out what histones did, and little did I know that You'd be 30 years later <laughs> that histones would become very important in therapeutics. Uh, but that, that really cemented my interest in research, and then I moved on to the University of Minnesota where I had my pediatric uh, training, and that was a very research-oriented department at the time. Uh, Bob Good, uh, who was one of the fathers of human immunology, was there and very inspirational to all of the house officers. And uh, actually, my first paper was written uh, with Bob Good and Dick Hong as co-authors, and they really got me interested in immunology. Then I moved on to the National Institutes of Health, where I continued to study immunology, uh, macrophage lymphocyte interactions with Joe Oppenheim, who uh, subsequently discovered some key cytokines and chemokines, such as was involved in the discovery of IL-1. IL-8 particularly. And uh, from there I went to University College London where I studied, studied tumor immunology with uh, Avrian Mitchison and John Owen and uh, then decided to work on neuroblastoma because at the time neuroblastoma was thought to be a really good model for the immune human immune response to cancer. This was work that the Hellstroms did in Seattle. It turned out that what they were looking at was not specific T-cell immunity, but probably 
natural killer cell uh, responses to neuroblastoma cells. But that got me interested in neuroblastoma, and also because the outcome for neuroblastoma was so dismal in those days for the high-risk patients. It was 5% survival was best. So it was truly a challenge, but uh, really interesting from the biology standpoint. And were you seeing patients throughout this time, or were these was this a year of years well, I, of I, I saw, on? obviously, patients when I was a resident and intern in Minnesota, but then I had five years out being a mouse doctor and a guinea pig doctor when I was at the <laughs> NIH and, and in London. Uh, but then I came back when I was at UCLA originally to uh, the faculty appointment was to I saw patients then, but mostly was doing lab work, too. Um, and I guess, you know, there's a whole number of things that have been really exciting through a career in biomedicine, like everybody that's in this area of research. Well, it seems like exciting. what you're describing, you've really um, started off with an immunology, and you even mentioned macrophages back then, and your talk today was all about macrophages and the immune response and the host uh, cells within a tumor, which has become quite in vogue, this tumor microenvironment bit. Although a lot of your career maybe wasn't studying that. You were looking at the tumor right. cell itself. Yeah, I, I originally started out studying at the NIH and then at the University College London uh, tumor immunology, and I was really strongly convinced that immunology, as many people were, that immunology was really important. And then like in many fields, the pendulum swings back and forth, and my own personal pendulum swung back and forth. So I was interested and enthusiastic about immune responses, and then as there was less and less data supporting it, it swung the other way. And now, as we have greater technologies, I think we can really explore questions that we couldn't even think about 30 years ago. Sure. So I think now, uh, clearly, uh, no question from studies that have been done recently, particularly the one that Alice Yu did, uh, studying the antibody against neuroblastoma cells and showing it improves outcome by 20% uh, is a landmark study because it really puts immunology on the map. Sure validates yeah. the approach, yeah. Uh, but that's probably, hopefully, just the beginning. It's, hope, it's the beginning, clearly, because there's still, 40, even without immunotherapy, there's still you know, roughly 40% of patients that fail even getting that therapy. And so the question is, how can you further improve immunotherapy, whether it's antibody and K-based immunotherapy, how can you come in with generating adaptive so-called immune responses, uh, which means the immune system responding to the tumor and then killing it itself without giving antibody. And I think here, some of the work being done in adult malignancies, particularly melanoma, are very exciting. So one of the things it seems like you've been very adept at accomplishing throughout your career is taking the science and bringing it to the clinic. Uh, obviously, this kind of translational research is a buzz word now. Uh, how did you sort of find yourself able to do that, and what tricks did you need, or uh, what were some of the keys to getting that done? Well, I think the thing that drives that from the very beginning, in my own career anyway, was, as I said, 5% survival rate is horrible. And if your child had neuroblastoma at that point, it was horrible. It's still not good because it's still only 45%, but it, with high-risk disease. Low-risk disease, intermediate risk now is 95% or better. But I think that's what really drove me. I just did not want to do research and bottle it up in the lab and never help anybody. And so my goal always has been to do research that somehow would have an impact on the patient and help the patient. 
And do you think that's a lot harder to do nowadays with all the regulations, et cetera? Oh, well, that's a very important question. Yes, definitely. There's no question that's more difficult to do now with all the regulations. Now, you know, just to get tumor samples or bone marrow samples, there's a, a huge amount of regulatory hoops one has to jump through compared to when Brodeur and I discovered the importance of the NMIC oncogene, MIC-N oncogene in neuroblastoma. I'd been collecting tumors because we asked people to send us tumors, and so I had a bank of tumors. And that would have been much more difficult now than it was back in the late 70s, early 80s. Clinical trials now, it's a whole specialty, just doing clinical trials to be able to follow the rules and regulations. And it's really become a science, I think, whereas 30 years ago it wasn't so much of a science. And do you think overall that's a good thing or not a good thing? I think personally that it's gone a little bit too far. It's like the pendulum of immunology I was talking about. I think personally, I think the regulatory pendulum has gone too far, but you know, we all understand why we've had these things because there have been some problems in human clinical research. And so the response is, well, let's do more regulating and those problems will go away. But I think it needs to be shown that problems will go away, in fact. Sure. More regulation. But I, I think uh, there's it's pretty clear the genesis of the increased regulation. And it's, sometimes that's been quite a frustration for patients, families, and even physicians to not have things move quicker from an exciting mouse finding yeah. into people. That, that is a huge frustration in doing clinical translational research is you have a really exciting laboratory study finding and then how quickly can you test that to see if it holds up in people and uh, that's a big challenge. Uh, the way we're doing it is things we study in the laboratory uh, in general are drugs or biologics, antibodies that are approved or well along the process of being approved by the FDA for some indication, and usually it'll be an adult indication, uh, so that we know the agent's going to be available so we can do a clinical trial. And we're not faced with a drug company saying, okay, we'll do one uh, drug X, and then six months later pull the plug on it, or a year later. So it's, a, it's an important conceptual thing, I think, um, for parents uh, to understand the availability of drugs is uh, uh, one looks early in the pipeline, they may not be there later, a few years later. Yeah. And so that's why we really focus on something that's already approved. And there, there are a lot of drugs out now that have got clear applications to pediatric malignancies. Of course, the conundrum. And we just need though, to figure out how to use them. Sure, but the <clears throat> conundrum, I guess, is what about those that were missing that would only work in pediatrics but aren't being developed? I'm not convinced that there are a huge number of those. I mean, I, I think actually there's a lot of similarities probably between adult and pediatric malignancies. Certainly in the areas I'm working in, in immunology uh, and microenvironment, there are a lot of similarities. Shared tumor antigens, yeah. shared yeah, uh, exactly. pathways, and so forth. Yeah. That, that's something that a lot of people do. Site uh, as an issue, and that there ought to be more pediatric-specific drug development. But you're basically saying there's plenty of other stuff uh, to go around. I think around. there are. I think there are, and I think the issue is how do you prioritize all those other drugs that are out there? I mean, if you look at tyrosine kinase inhibitors, you know how many are there? I don't know, probably 20 or 30. Maybe I'm much underestimating it. But how do you prioritize which ones you want to use in which disease in pediatrics and 
So that's where I believe the preclinical models become really important, both in vitro and in vivo. Preclinical models to go along with adult experience to you know, prioritize the clinical trial you want to do in kids. What do you think the risk is of um, eliminating something based on preclinical studies, but uh, falsely eliminating it? Or in other words, your, your model really doesn't reflect what's happening in people. Uh, there, I agree, that is a potential issue. Uh, there's no perfect model, I think. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, you have to start somewhere. So I think in vitro tissue culture screening is certainly a way that you can screen through number of drugs or drug combinations or immunological approaches, but tissue culture are cells growing on plastic, not cells growing in the bone marrow or as a mass. And so you really have to combine the test tube slash in vitro experiments with mouse experiments, then it becomes an issue of, well, what mouse models do you use? A model where you put human tumor cells into immune deficient mouse uh, or a mouse model where the mouse is genetically engineered to make the tumor uh, or where you've got a tumor cell, mouse tumor cell line that you can, that's basically identical, histocompatible, syngenetic that you can transplant from one mouse to the other. Uh, I think my answer is you need them all. So we have uh, xenograft, that is human, human tumors into immunodeficient mice. We have those models for both local disease and disseminated disease. And we have two transgenic models, that is, models where the mice are bred to develop tumors. And so they've got a fully immune, fully intact immune system. The, the disadvantage of the mouse tumors is many of them are highly chemosensitive, so they may not represent some of our highly aggressive human tumors. Uh, the disadvantage of the human end of the mouse systems are they don't have a full immune system. So there's no perfect model. you got, you got to have them all, I think. Uh, do the best you can do. Now, building such models and validating testing them is a lot of work and the typical NIH grant doesn't pay for mouse building or sorry model building how, how have you been able to get all that work done and pay for it and so forth well I, I absolutely that's a really good question and I think um, the NIH grants will pay for some but they won't generally pay for just building a model unless you're in some kind of consortium which I think there still is a transgenic mouse tumor model consortium, but uh, sometimes you have to use foundation money, donor money, and so on to, to do this kind of uh, sort of groundwork to build a foundation for your model yeah. to, to then use it to answer a, a, a question that you've posed. Well, I kind of bring that up because Solving Kids Cancer that sponsors this podcast is trying to raise money, private donations, you know, it's not an NIH entity, so I think one of the things they, although they do like to fund clinical trials, but similar to other foundations, these are the kinds of studies they may want to fund because other people won't. Right. Yeah. I, I think the preclinical studies, particularly the mouse studies, are really important before launching into a, a pediatric clinical trial unless there is overwhelming data on the adult side that you know you really don't need to do the mouse study. An example of that would be this antibody ipilimumab, which has just been shown to achieve 25% long-term survival in patients with metastatic melanoma. And, well, do we really need to do mouse neuroblastoma studies? It would have to be in the fully immune-competent mouse to launch a trial in pediatrics, and I don't think you do. But, you know, we'll see what other reviewers would think right. of and propose such a study. That's the anti-CTLA-4 antibody yes, that's that right. reverses the immune suppression right, in, right. in the mouse. Or in uh, the tumor. But I, I think 
we clearly have to prioritize what we do because clinical trials are very expensive. Our estimation is about 20000 per patient in phase one or phase two clinical trials. And so, you know, a lot of money, and so you have to really be sure as you can that you're testing a good idea and that it does have perhaps a future if your phase one study or phase two study is successful. It's got a future to go on to phase three, and then if it's successful there, that the therapeutic agent will be available. So it can indeed help kids, you know, and not right. just end up, well, it's something the company became uninterested in, so it's no longer available. Talk about frustration. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you have built sort of a machine to do some clinical trial testing, the new approaches to neuroblastoma therapy consortium. Can you tell me about that and how, how that came about and what it's Right, so uh, this is a, a North American consortium that includes 16 institutions, including Cincinnati Children's Hospital, uh, that uh, performs early phase clinical trials in neuroblastoma, and uh, it's really uh, focused on neuroblastoma trials where there's good laboratory data to support them, uh, where the agents might be specific for neuroblastoma, such as uh, meta-iodobenzoglonidine, MIBG, uh, where laboratory studies, uh, let's say with the antibody, the anti-GD2 antibody, suggests ways that we can improve that therapy. Uh, and it's designed to do as rapidly as we can early phase clinical trials, and then if the trial is promising, move it into the children's oncology group. Uh, for more definitive testing. And so we're basically a, a partner with the Children's Oncology Group to uh, generate the data that's necessary then to say, yes, we should do a definitive phase three study. Um, and an example of a study, well, two studies that we're doing, uh, are uh, MIBG studies, which Kate Mathay has pioneered, led many of those. Steve Dubois is now doing those too which are going into the COG. Uh, and another example would be a study that we're about to start using a uh, drug uh, from a company called Millennium, combining with Arinotecan and Timidar, which Lars uh, Wagner here at Cincinnati Children's has done a lot of work on. So that Arinotecan, Timidar, MLN study is specifically being done to generate data then so it can go into a COG trial. And is that uh, ALK inhibitor, or is that Orokinase inhibitor? Yeah, So that um, that is an exciting example. Are there others that come to mind? Yeah, I, I think besides the antibody and MIBG, uh, you know, uh, we also did with Lars Chering at an Arinotecan Temidar study, uh, and uh, uh, fenretinide is a drug that's not yet approved that we've done a lot of work with Pat Reynolds and Barry Maurer on that, and that may go into COG. It's not totally clear yet. What's the issue with that? I've read about fenretinide for a long time. Yeah, it's a very, I think it's a really a promising drug, uh, whether given orally or IV. They develop new formulations that look like they're more effective. But it's, uh, again, it's an issue of, um, you know, moving it forward, uh, probably initially in an adult indication. Uh, and then if they get a license, then it could be looked at in definitive studies in pediatrics. So what's the adult indication? Uh, they're working on ovarian cancer is one thing they're working on. So that's big enough that yeah. it might get some traction? Yeah, yeah it might. Have uh, legs. Actually, t cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is the other one where they've gotten some responses. So, um, 
So those are, you know, examples of, and then we, of course, piloted uh, before the NANT existed, but the institutions in the NANT, uh, including Cincinnati, piloted bone marrow purging, which was the way that we did the transplant versus no transplant study in the 1990s that showed that myeloblative therapy with purge bone marrow transplant improved outcome. And uh, then we also piloted the purging of PBSC, which in the 2000s showed that you don't need to purge PBSC. So we put ourselves out of business, so to speak. But that's fine. Purging, <laughs> as long as it's for, purging it's the, the right thing to do, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we did that, and, and we also actually uh, piloted the myeloablative regimens that are used. And, so there have been a lot of it things that have like moved on to. You've played a role in almost yeah. all the advances yeah. of neuroblastoma therapy, it seems, yeah. uh, to some one degree or another. Um, can you speak to... Maybe what you think or what was the hardest thing to, to get done and or your proudest thing to have done? Well, I think still uh, the thing that was the most um, transformative thing was the discovery that the NMIC gene, when it's present in multiple copies, amplified, uh, predicts that the tumor will be a really aggressive tumor. I mean, that was the first time that an oncogene was shown in any human cancer to be associated with tumor behavior, clinical tumor behavior. That's work that Brother and I did, and it was... Around what um, year was that? This was in eight, 1984, the first paper, and then the, the definitive paper associating with outcome was 1985. And we, you know, were able to do that because Bishop and Varmus had discovered, and, and Manfred Schwab had discovered the uh, McCann oncogene, and Brother was involved in some of those early studies. I had tumors in the bank, so we got together. So anyway, that was... One of the things, I think the other things that are, uh, I'm proud about are working along with many others to develop antibody therapy, uh, working uh, to develop myeloblative therapy, and uh, finally the biomarker area is really important. In addition to NMIC, we're now, with modern technologies, using gene expression profiling to predict how patients will do that can't otherwise be segregated into a good group and a bad group. And so that's work that Shahabas Garzadai and I are doing uh, to look at a patient's tumor diagnosis and predict how the patient's going to do with that so they would get different therapies depending on which group. And then the second biomarker is using a very sensitive technology to uh, evaluate tumor response in bone marrow and blood. And uh, that is a means of looking at very rare tumor cells one has a ability to detect one tumor cell out of a million normal bone marrow cells to see if the patient's responding or see if they've got tumor cells when they finish therapy. If they do, what does that mean? Does that mean they're going to relapse in the next year? Uh, or something's going to take care of it and it's going to go away, either differentiation or the immune system or something. Those are That's an unanswered question at this point, but in the next year it'll be answered and I think it's going to be very important. So. Seems I like think combining therapeutics with biomarkers is really important. I was just going to say it seems like neuroblastoma was sort of the poster child for uh, combining all the different approaches and angles yeah. of coming at a cancer, and now we're adding the biomarker risk stratification to that. How do you sort of put that all together for any given individual patient? Well, first of all, you need good bioinformaticists and good statisticians to figure out all this information so you don't, don't have false discoveries, you know, uh, so that's that's key is to have 
that, you need the technology to do it, and uh, ultimately to help patients, it needs to, the biomarker uh, needs to go into a CAPCLIA certified lab so that, uh, you know, you can be sure that the assay is done the same day in, day out as reproducible and what it's sensitivity, specificity, all that stuff is. And uh, then it can be translated into the clinic. It still would be done in a reference lab, I think, one or two reference labs, because neuroblastoma is a, not a very common disease, as we all know. But uh, I think it'll biomarkers will get translated. The other area that's really important, which is not being investigated too much yet in conjunction with early phase clinical trials, is imaging modalities. Yes, we have CT, MRI, MIBG, but I think that um, somehow we need to get to uh, more functional imaging that can include pharmacodynamic markers so that we can try to see what our therapy is doing to a tumor. Uh, if it's infusing cells, uh, immune system cells, are those immune system cells actually getting to the tumor? Or are they staying there? How long are they lasting and so on? So. It almost brings us back to the beginning where we talked about the tumor microenvironment, macrophages, et cetera, in a tumor that are playing a role. Can we image those? Can we, um, you know, use some biomarker to measure those as we attack them? I, I hope so. I think there are potentially ways that you can use MRI with uh, F19 to uh, potentially image phagocytic cells in a tumor microenvironment, but it's, I have really emphasized potential. But also to label cells ex vivo if you're infusing them to then follow them where they go. I mean, the other ways you can label ex cells ex vivo is for PET imaging, but I think that's a little more difficult perhaps because of the gene insertions that are required and so on, the regulations that we talked about. But, but I think imaging is very important. Certainly, cellular therapy for microenvironment therapy, and uh, it's a fruitful area for research. Still, a lot of exciting things yeah. to go. Do you have yeah. uh, any personal goals for what you want to tackle in the next five to ten years? <laughs> well, uh, well, I would like to see um, uh, the biomarkers that I was talking about predicting patients' outcome at diagnosis and following tumor response. I'd like to see those implemented clinically. So it becomes standard practice, and it, if it looks like it benefits the patients, which I think it will. And secondly, I guess I'd like to see therapy based on immunology and the microenvironment attacking the microenvironment, uh, manipulating it so immunotherapy is more efficient, so chemotherapy, so radiation is more efficient. I'd like to see those things happen. Uh, clearly, ultimately, to prove these is going to take a randomized study, which is a five-year undertaking in itself. So that's, it's a long-term investment. That's, a, that's a, the way clinical research is. Yes, that's for sure. So we attacked the tumor cell. Now we got to attack the tumor microenvironment and put that all together. That's, that's absolutely correct. Well, I think we've come to the end of our discussion. I very much appreciate your being here and willing to subject yourself to this podcast experience. Uh, so, thanks for Thank for you very this. much. I'm honored that you asked me to participate. I think it's a terrific project. If anybody writes in uh, any key questions, maybe I'll either get you back on or send you an email and we can get, okay. you, get your, your answers. So, to the listeners, please don't forget to send us comments or questions at TWIPO at solvingkidscancer.org. And remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. 
As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.